0: Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience and with that, I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Well, my guest today is Zach Goldsmith, uh, Lord Goldsmith of Richmond, no less. Good to see you. Who you're smoking a heat stick, having given up smoking <laughs> cigarettes eight, eight days ago, which eight is incredible ago. self-discipline. I've, I've, I've given up a hundred times. Right. And well, next time I see you, you, might be back on the fags, but I'll the say, moment we'll you're, not, like, you're not, you're not. I, I, you were born Frank, or you were originally yes. christened Frank, which was presumably after your grandfather, who was an MP. Yes,
1: but I didn't know that until I got married. And you have to dig up your birth certificate. No one had told me. I I knew Frank was in the name, but I assumed it was my middle name. Yeah. Doesn't sound quite as sexy as Zach, if I may say so. No, I would, my nickname was Frankie at, uh, at prep school. So, but no link. It was very odd that, that my friends called me Frankie. And I had.
0: The Goldsmith family is obviously. S- seldom out of the papers and uh, your father of course was this buccaneering entrepreneur hugely successful lived a lot of time abroad i think uh, married s- several times so it must have been quite a rich family upbringing and of course he's he started in latter life the referendum party yeah i mean what so what was your relationship with your father i'm not asking for sort of detail but i mean did did you sort of talk politics to him did you
1: yes all the time I mean, he was a huge figure. I mean, it was very sort of exotic background, really. But, I, but when you're growing up in it, you don't think it's unusual. You have brothers and sisters all over the world. Um, but he was, he was the most dominant figure that I've ever come across in my life. So if you're in a room with him, it didn't matter how many people were there, he was the focus of attention, undisputably. And I hung on his every word. I found him fascinating. I mean, it probably wasn't the conventional kind of father-son relationship. He was much more sort of grandfatherly with my younger siblings from and, and different litter. Um, but he, um, but I, 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 it was very rare that a week goes by where I don't wish I could ask his views on stuff that's happening at the moment. He had a just piercing intellect. He was fascinating. He was such good company.
0: And your mother, of course, uh, had been married to Mark Burley, the yeah. great restauranteur and nightclub owner. You, you know, you, you have a very well known sister who was married to. Imran Imran Khan the great cricketer and Ben of course a campaigner for wild farming and things like that. Yeah. So it's uh it must've been quite a, a noisy household when you were brought up.
1: It's it's always been very noisy. We all eat incredibly quickly because uh, it's like a competition <laughs> for food. Um but they um it's kind of, I mean it's we we do we we cover quite a big chunk of the world. You think Imran right now causing huge issues in Pakistan. I don't know if you're following all Well, I was. You'd have a a Zoom call with him,
0: but they cut off his internet. It was blocked,
1: I think, by the Pakistani government. Yeah. So he um, is—he is probably the biggest political figure Pakistan has had since the founder, and it's hugely worrying because obviously, if there was an election now, he'd win it very easily, and there will therefore be huge efforts made to prevent that from happening, and all kinds of ludicrous charges thrown at him. um, But I don't think any of them. Would or even could stick, so it's it's a sort of worrying time, and you know, for his yeah. sons particularly, it must be you know they live in a permanent state of anxiety. And presumably, you, you've seen him and been in touch with him. Recently. I haven't seen him for a long time. For I mean, I could, probably a couple of years.
0: And It's quite ironic now that you are minister for the Commonwealth, so you could it is within your
1: remit to go and visit Pakistan at any moment. Yes, but I'm kept well away from Pakistani politics. I think the Foreign Office is paralysed by fear that I might tweet about Imran.
0: So your, your great passion
1: was, obviously,
0: ecology. You started under the
1: wing of your uncle, really.
0: Yeah. In 97, you became editor of, of, of um, Ecologist, didn't you? Yeah. And, uh, what I mean, you presumably not had a huge amount of journalistic experience. I had none.
1: Uh, but what happened was the magazine collapsed. And the, the then team, my uncle wasn't involved at the time. He'd been pushed out for being too conservative, I think.
0: That's conservative with a small c,
1: presumably. Yes. Yeah. Um he it was and the the team disbanded the magazine was dropped i think it was losing a lot of money at the time and i was supposed to come in as part of a team as this reviews editor or the letters editor but one by one the team fell apart and i was the only one left it was a battle we'd find ourselves being threatened with court pretty much every issue and i remember monsanto no longer. Well, Monsanto has been absorbed. Now yes. Into another company. Yeah. But we did one called the Monsanto files because no one had ever published anything successfully about Monsanto without you know they'd have to pulp it or, or, or they'd end up in court. And we did the Monsanto files. Well, Monsanto and were. Uh, you the, should just explain. Monsanto was they were the, the biggest at the time genetic engineering company. They produced PCBs. They produced Agent Orange. Yeah, which we all know about. Agent the, Orange, which is the thing that brought them down. Yes, and they it was a pretty sort of monstrous company. And we had a um, we had. Um, we did the Monsanto files and I expected them to come for me, but they never did. They went to they, they went to the printers who refused to give me the magazine. I ended up having to buy a printing firm for one night in order to print the magazine, hold the liability and sell it back to them the next day. Money never changed hands, but it meant that I had the liability. Then Smiths and Menzies wouldn't stock it. They were threatened by Monsanto, so we had no shops, no outlets. But at the time, I was selling nothing. I said 8,000 copies a month. and We ended up selling well over a million copies of that edition in 14 different languages. Yes, and it was amazing. entirely down to the clumsy uh, activities of Monsanto. And their mean, bullying, bullying behavior. It was just stupid. If they completely ignored us, I would have sold 6,000 copies and no one would have blinked. But in the end, it was like, picked up all over the world, sort of catapulted the magazine into a prominence that it had never really had.
0: Mm. And so, you loved that time.
1: I, yes, it was exhausting, but I loved it. And, um, and um, sort of amazed that I got through it unscathed. We did. We made mistakes. So there were times when when there was a time we did an article on De Beers, and diamonds. It wasn't my article. But I, it was commissioned, and there were some errors, and I ended up um, I had to apologise for that, and rightly. But we did another one, which very I thought would end up in court, which was about a guy called Richard Doll. Do you remember Richard Doll? No. He was a man who established the link between smoking and cancer, but he had also been heavily compromised. And we, we couldn't prove it, but it just seemed inconceivable that he wasn't on the payroll of companies like Monsanto, uh, British Nuclear Fuels and others. Uh, because his, his, his conclusions on so many issues were mad. Agent Orange, gave a clean bill of health, PCBs, um, you had cancer clusters around a few nuclear power plants, and he attributed it to a virus for which there's no evidence at all still today. And he threatened to sue us, but then died. And I had a slight pang of guilt. Maybe we got it wrong, bullying this old man. But it turned out a few months later, his paper surfaced in The Guardian, and he was on the payroll of all these companies. So we'd been absolutely Another expose. We had him bang to rights. I just (laughs) couldn't prove it at the time. (laughs) So just on this subject of the
0: family and, and, and fame, in a sense, how do you cope with it? Because it's not often you're not in some, in the early days, in the gossip columns and and now you have a lot of media exposure for some of the decisions that are obviously brilliant, and some
1: are not so brilliant in the eyes of the media. How, how do you cope with it? Well, I don't nowadays. I don't. I never read anything. Um, I haven't for years. Not even your ministerial briefs. I, I, I devour <laughs> my ministerial briefs, of course, no, but I never read media. If it's, I mean, unless it's a serious piece about something you know that I really care about. But I know. I mean, I well, I ran for mayor for a year. There was daily coverage, and. And I knew that the vast majority of it would be hostile. Yeah. And I didn't read a single article, not no. one. Well, you were um, wise not to. I know. I would every, every now and again, I get a text from someone saying, "God, that was an awful article in the Guardian." I, I would always I'd get a pang of of pain or fury, but I never read the articles. Um, and I think that is the right strategy. So I'm I'm pretty much insulated. I'm immune from bad press.
0: You've immune yourself. You've immune yourself.
1: Yeah, I, I think you have. You can become obsessed otherwise. And 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 the thing is, you, but you a, say you didn't
0: used to be what. what?
1: Well, as a, when I was much, much younger, and I wasn't used to having things written, I sort of read them and I would take it very personally. But you just can't do that. I have a friend right and now, and it hurt a lot of it. it, it more, it was just pissed me off, to be honest, because so much of it was untrue. Uh, you know, when you know an issue and you see it covered in the press, invariably they've got it wrong, and and that whether it's about you or about someone else, and it, it is infuriating. But I have a friend right now <coughs> who's having a hard time. I won't name him, but he's having a hard time in the press, and I, I was—he so was very badly affected by it. And I just pointed out to him that, you know, the, the red line for, for should be—and I think in real, in the real world, it is is—that if you, if you're embarrassed about the exposure in front of your friends and family, then you've done something wrong. But if it has no bearing on your relationships with the people you care about, you can ignore it. Doesn't matter what the press write. And I think that is an important. Someone said this to me years ago, and I feel that's very. Very wise and very true.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, just going back to now onto your political life, you're a sort of kind of extraordinary guy to want to put your head on the block. You're you're if I read, believe half what I read in the paper, you're independently wealthy. Uh, you're quite shy. I would have, I would have said as a person, even though you know you're very good company, but quite shy. I remember canvassing with you the first time in Kingston. Yeah, I remember. Uh, and uh, you, you didn't really want to knock on doors and engage with people, but you became very good at it because you realized that actually people wanted to talk to you and you knew how to do it. But it's it was that, maybe residence is the right word. I mean, the thing I admire about you enormously is you're, you're very committed to it and you kind of don't need to be. And so my real question is,
1: why did you do it? But I, look, I, I mean, you're right, you're, I am quite sure. Not, I, it's a, um, but it's a means to an end politics. You know, I never, I don't like the game of politics. I think mo- most people, I mean, you have to be a bit odd to like the game of politics. It's kind of miserable business, but it is a means to an end and you can get stuff done in politics that you can't get done outside of the system. Even as a backbench MP, you know, there were things that I was able to do that I could have spent 20 years campaigning for the Blue Belt, for example. was a big campaign I ran uh, with a mutual friend, Richard Benyon, and this resulted I, mean, I, I went to number 10. I wrote letters to David Cameron pretty much every week. <laughs> and it was a sort of like Shawshank Redemption, you know, those demanding <laughs> books for the library. And then finally he caved. And we now have a situation where we have around our overseas territories, all around the world, an area of ocean yeah. bigger than India, fully protected. Mm. That was an amazing thing. I mean, if amazing. that's all I'd done as a backbench MP, I'd be happy. Um, and that's, But there's no way I could have done that from outside of the system. And now as a minister, I can but
0: on that subject, you'd been very helpful to Cameron before he got into power. You'd been an advisor on these particular yeah. issues, and actually, in truth, I was minister for energy and climate change at the time. You know, Cameron was very committed yeah. to this cause,
1: so you were slightly pushing on open door well, in terms well, of the prime minister, but not necessarily in terms of the treasury. I that that is very true. There was a big gap between the two, as there always is. But he was very good on um, he was good on climate. But he was less good on the natural environment, and this is the problem is that almost all efforts by governments around the world on what we call the environment is really about carbon. Uh, it's all about you know technology and the energy transit. and that stuff's going to happen anyway, whatever politicians do, even under president. Trump, you know, coal use fell faster on his watch than it had under Obama. Politicians aren't, you know, we're not as big as the market. The market's already decided that transition is happening, whether we like it or not. I do like it. Not everyone does, but it's happening. It's inevitable. There's nothing inevitable about the natural environment. You know, the the Amazon is going to be wiped out. The Congo Basin will be wiped out unless we intervene. And it's a big deal. You think two thirds of Africa's rainfall comes from the Congo Basin. So i mean if we allow half a million hectares a year to be destroyed as it is today that you're looking at a humanitarian crisis on a biblical scale mm. and my what frustrates me is that that particularly the left but but the greens generally the focus is all on the kind of technical stuff the technology stuff the carbon the carbon taxing carbon this, carbon that there's very little emphasis on the natural world but there is no solution there's no pathway to net zero there's no solution to climate change or any of the other issues we deal with, without the natural world, so that has been my obsession, and that's what and that's did the that's the foundation for your uh, beliefs and your do, and everything a, you everything you do. I do. you There is no, I don't even begin to understand. We're only just understanding the role of the Amazon in providing rainfall for the southern states of America. We have not we don't really know. We're just beginning to pick the stuff up. All we know is that it's an incredibly complex system. And when you break those systems, you lose the sort of free services that nature provides, and then we're stuffed. And there's no technological substitute for a forest. It's just, it just doesn't exist. And it, it, it just feels to me that it's 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 left out in a sort of really dumb manner. And I think the one really big thing that we achieved under Boris was at COP26 where we put nature at the heart of the agenda. There'd never been discussions around forests. Can you imagine having a climate conference without talking about forests? It seems insane now. But that is how they've been every single COP until Boris. And we we got 90, 145 countries representing 90% of the world's forests committing to end deforestation this decade. And amazingly, we seem to be turning that promise into reality. And you think the Amazon, that'll happen? I, I do. I think it's very difficult, but I do, yeah. And I think the UK can take a lot of credit for that so we're, we're putting together you know hopefully this year will have finished the process we're putting together big coalitions of support for the different amazon countries uh, by the way we know it's possible uh, in all these biomes like in, in the congo basin gabon for example I, we both share a love for gabon gabon mm-hmm. is a country that has broken the link between logging and deforestation it's amazing so they got 10 times more people employed in logging than they had 10 years ago they got 20 times more revenue for the government from logging than they had 10 years ago but there is no net deforestation at all they've they just banned the export of raw timber they do it very selectively i walked through a forest you know I, I i'm definitely not an expert but i walked through a forest that had been logged twice and i would never have known it ever had any human interference Mm. at all it had big population of gorillas had forest elephants charging around brimming with life i would not have known that anyone had been there let alone the place had been logged twice Mm. and that's what they've done and they do it you know it's delivered prosperity to a lot of people a lot of jobs and if they can do it anyone can do it and it just shows what's possible and the same in south america you've got costa rica that have broken the link between agricultural commodities and deforestation, and
0: of course these are the smaller countries; these are the smaller populated countries. It's yes. really getting stuck well, in. Well, Costa Rica's we, not so no, but it, populated. It, 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 it's getting stuck in, isn't it, to the the major companies? And I, I admire your
1: championing. But, but but there's not an example of what needs to happen that isn't already happening. That's the point. So it's, it's actually not. I think for me that's, that that makes me feel very optimistic. It is possible. You, you, you were, of course, a minister in the environment, so that must have been a dream job for you. It, well, un, un, initially, so I, I was brought in under Boris yes. and I had a sort of blank check. And, you know, probably I, um, I, I took a lot of shortcuts, which would normally end up having a minister fired. But he had my back, and he, you know, people look, talk about Boris in a very unfair way, in my view. He does care about this stuff, he knows about this stuff. He's quite a newcomer on the climate. As does his wife. She's very, she's very big on animal welfare in particular, mm-hmm. Boris and, and environment, but Boris, his father was one of the first contributors to the Ecologist magazine. You know, he grew up on this stuff. And you know, so when you have the prior presidents of, of Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, Costa Rica, asking the UK to, to sponsor them to create the biggest ocean reserve in the world... Boris's immediate instinct is yes, whereas most prime ministers would sort of delegate it to another department. They wouldn't really care. So we made that first commitment. We made a tiny financial commitment relative to government spending on aid. It was two million pounds, which in the context no, of nothing. 15 billion a year or something is, is not a lot. But that two, two million resulted within six months in 100 million being committed by people who saw the UK doing it and thought, well, they must have done their due diligence. This yeah. is obviously a real project. And it, it's now happening. And. There are hundreds of examples of those kinds of things that I would not have been able to do under any other prime minister. It would have taken months, maybe years to get through the system. But with Boris, we could do it in half an hour. And we did in that instance. We did that in half an hour. And there are many, many other examples like that. Under Liz, it was different. Um, it was very, it's very Liz different. Truss. Sorry, under Liz Truss, it was very different. She was, you know, she was only there for a short period of time. Um, there was obviously much less enthusiasm for these sorts of issues. I felt that I was really going to have to fight. I wasn't convinced I'd survive for long. And now under the current uh, prime minister, it's it's much more um, it's business as usual in one sense. And there's no hostility from Number Ten to this agenda, which is a good thing. I mean, you know, we would always hope for more than just not an absence of hostility. But but it's 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 we don't have the same charge, momentum that we had for those three years under Boris. And, and therefore, I've, I'm having to fight a lot harder now than I had to it for those three years. But of course, it's not necessarily your brief now because you're in the Foreign Office. But it is my brief because the international environment is, I'm, I am the Minister for the International Environment and Climate, so anything but to uh, do with you're not it's no longer in the uk was my point, no yeah. that's correct i don't so but but i yeah but i had very little to do with you i was always blamed for unpopular uk environmental policy. well i was one of them by <laughs> you as well but, but actually my,
0: my actually my, I, most people blame the prime minister's wife which i didn't but
1: <laughs> but, they, but my 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 i leave my, my, my formal influence on domestic politics it was 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 very small um I, you know there are, I've never been a farming minister, obviously, land use is the main environmental impact. that's not what I do. I do have never done energy policy in the UK of any sort. My My main work has been oceans and international Environment.
0: and, that's and what I do. You, you are rightly proud of it. But so going back to 2010 where you put yourself to the electorate of Richmond, you had decided that you wanted to become an MP because it was a, a means to an end. Yeah. I, I can understand that. And you uh, won by 4,000 seats, roughly, overturning a Liberal Democrat because they love you so much. It was a 23,000 majority in 2015. That uh, changed very I, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think at that time, you weren't really ha- I mean, you had the impact on Oceans, but you were a backbench MP yeah. and perhaps weren't being given the real opportunities that you rightly deserved. So in 2016, you decided to become uh, to run for London Mayor. Which, in a sense, is a means to an end, but it doesn't entirely tick all the boxes in terms of your passion and the foundation of your ecology thing. Obviously, it has impact on London, but there are many more sort of important things on the shopping list. Yeah, You decided whilst you're doing this, if I remember, to ask all your constituents whether they thought it was a good idea.
1: Yeah. I did. Which was but, very noble of you. Well, I, I did lots of stupid, noble things at the time. I mean, I was never expected to win in 2010. I mean, The Telegraph had an article saying I was toast. I think used to toast in their title. And I was, I was not expecting to win in 2010. Well, with the people who had canvassing, I'm not but, surprised. Well, you know? quite. Thank you so much, <laughs> Lord Marlon. Um, and and um, the second time round, Uh, it it had gone well. So I came back with a big majority. It was the biggest increase of any MP in the country at the time. That's a very braggy thing to say. But when you consider that only a year later I was turfed out, (laughs) I feel obliged to make that point. Um, But I asked people if they were happy. So I'd only just been elected. So I felt that I I didn't want people to think I was running away. So I wanted their approval in a referendum to run for mayor, because it would have meant inevitably a year of not paying as much attention to the constituency as I otherwise would. But they said yes, uh, which was good, sort of um actually in hindsight i wish i said no but but at the time i was very grateful they said yes and then that year was was in many respects horrific that running for mayor was it absolutely horrific it was exhausting i had a child born halfway through the year i barely saw him i was this weirdo who would change his nappy or something at three in the morning no idea who i was it was very very long hours relentless and it was um and there were some moments I saw and experienced things that I never otherwise would have done. Did you ever think things. you were going to win? The, no, to be honest. Yeah. I thought there was always a chance, but I never thought I would win. I thought I could win, potentially. Um, but I lost control of the campaign. I completely lost control. So by the end, because I couldn't... Because Linton was running the well, I'm not going to blame Linton. I blame myself. I mean, it was, you know, I was a candidate. But I um, it, it reached a point where I couldn't discuss an issue without the entire interview being dominated by some accusations of islamophobia now those were nonsense allegations but i couldn't escape them I and mean, if i ask people now give me one example of something i or anyone in my campaign did or said or hinted at that was islamophobic no one can provide a single example the, the most they'll say is a, an article in the mail with a ridiculous title but as anyone who has ever written an article for a paper knows you don't choose the article a title or the or the picture in fact we begged geordie Gregg, the editor at the time to remove it but he refused uh, annoyingly he should have changed it so it was an absurd title um no, and, I, I remember so, having a, cons- a so conversation with you over,
0: over not when you were running from mayor, but when we went to mall together you said mm. you know despite the fact that i'm jewish you, I, you don't really feel jewish and you mm. don't have any you know you're much more interested in
1: in, in um in the ecology of the world than
0: yeah, uh, than don't, a,
1: any religious things. And I I, I I hate extremism of any sort, from any quarter, because I just think it's a... I um I just think it, it just you know, the world is very unstable and I worry about the future. And I think maybe a little bit of my Jewish background makes me a little bit paranoid about the future because mm. the, and I, I think you anyway, even though your
0: mother wasn't Jewish.
1: No. So I'm not by religion I'm not Jewish. I've always I was my father. Instilled in me a sense of being Jewish, but but we've never, you know, I never went to the synagogue for the occasional bar mitzvah, or, you know, re- relatives um, ceremony of some sort. Mm. Um, I, I know very little about the culture of Judaism or the religion of Judaism, but I always felt very identified. I mean, you know, it was always pointed out to me that if I'd been in Germany, as many of my family were during those dark days, I would have ended up, you know, qualifying for the appalling treatment that everyone else received. Um, so I think that probably does. I think most people who have Jewish elements in their family have a slight paranoia about things getting out of control, unstable. And and I certainly have that. Um but no, there was the, the campaign I wanted the campaign to be about things that I wanted to do in London. And some of those things were j- exciting. You know, I, we had some really good plans, but but it was well, the third was runway not to be. also came into play. The third runway came into play, but but it was at Heathrow. Yeah, actually, no, not during the campaign. So during the campaign, it was put on hold. That, so it was kind of kicked into the long grass because the government didn't want me to step down as a candidate for or to run as an independent. So at the time, we had this terrible showdown with with, with number ten. But in the end, the uh, third runway was kind of just kicked into the long grass. Um, but you know, having said that, I, I the job I had or have now as minister and was given by by Boris when he became prime minister is. Is just so much infinitely better than in terms of the opportunity to do stuff I care about than what I would have had as mayor. So I mean, in the end, despite being bruised and battered and exhausted by it, it was a good outcome because I I, I feel that I've been able to get stuff done in the last few years that uh, was just the stuff of dreams for me as a child all the way up to now. So I, I'm very grateful for that opportunity, and I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I'd been elected.
0: And your father, of course, who caused
1: great destruction amongst conservative
0: voters over. Mm with the referendum party and i think it was david Meller who accused him of losing his seat because of him i was there that night <laughs> Where were you? yeah uh, was someone
1: standing it was, it was someone standing on a bench and screaming at david Meller. it was not one of our people <laughs> screaming language i can't repeat on this mic but it was a it was a very badly behaved everyone was on their worst behavior including david Meller. i think
0: yeah almost certainly and um uh, he he Obviously, instilled a new, well, not obviously, presumably, instilled a new uh, a, a Brexit mantra.
1: Yeah, I I I I I voted for Brexit, and um, and I and I made the case. I mean, I have a slightly different approach, probably. I mean, I agree. There's there's nothing that I can think of that he said at the time that that I disagree with in relation to to Europe. But the the thing that motivated me was. I'm going to really, I'm a one trick pony, I'm afraid, but it's the environment. I think that the freedom the Brexit allows us, gives us in relation to the environment and things like animal welfare is huge. I and mean, the single biggest influence on our countryside is the appalling European common agricultural policy. I mean, you subsidise people on the basis of how much land they own that can be farmed. So if you've got 100 acres of beautiful ecosystem but not very valuable uh, agriculturally, you're paid nothing. You convert it into low-grade agricultural land, you suddenly make a lot of money. So we were seeing throughout the continent and in this country good land, good ecological, important land being converted to crap agricultural land and people getting rich off the back of it. it a world You literally couldn't design a worse system. And Brexit allowed us an opportunity to completely rethink that system. And I wouldn't say we've got it right, but it's a hell of a lot better where we're going now than where we're coming from, and that is a huge opportunity. It's just one example of many, many other examples. In CITES, you know, which controls the movement of, you know, body parts of, of endangered species and endangered species themselves, we have, as an independent voice, instead of just pooling our voice with Europe and losing every vote, we've been able to determine the outcome of votes on things like, you know, it's a law now preventing the movement of baby elephants out of Africa range states. You know, there's hundreds of examples of these, but some of the one that I happen to think of at the moment and that is entirely down to our negotiators. You know, we made the case, they were there working all hours, they persuaded other countries to vote for it and we got it through. And and since I've been a minister I could I could probably list you 200 occasions where we've influenced an international outcome on a vote or an agreement that we would not have been able to had we been part of the European Union. So for me the opportunity not to say we've taken advantage of all the opportunities clearly we haven't, but we have the freedom to. It, there's a danger, of course, that, that
0: the Conservatives might not win the next election. It's not by any means certain nothing is certain, so you would there not have at your disposal the political position that you that gives you the ability to change all these incredible things that you've done what's life what would what shape would life take after having the political power
1: do you think Could, I, I mean I you're only like,
0: in your late forties
1: yeah. Um, feel a lot older than that, but they um I um I, I think you know a week's holiday you'll look a lot younger. <laughs> I'm com- I am completely committed, one way or another, for as long as I'm able to to f- pursuing the same ends, and I'll use whatever means I have available to me. And I my worry about the the, the, the a change in government is not so much. I mean, I think on things like climate and so on, the, the, I, I don't see any backward steps there at all. On the contrary, but I think on you know, labour well you know they they clearly take climate change very seriously there's no doubting that they're less strong on the natural environment is the truth and that's always been the case and i am very keen i will be very keen should that transition happen to try and imbue a few champions in the labor party as possible with a Recognition of that—that this stuff matters. So, and of
0: course, uh, you'll be able to do this from the Lords. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, which, is, so, uh, which,
1: which is an amazingly privileged p- platform to have. You can, as as you know, as we, we both know, you can you can do a lot from the Lords. And and I will, I will use that that seat as well as I can to to take these issues forward, whoever the government is.
0: Well, Zach, it's incredibly kind of you to spare the time. I don't know why you you've done this. Uh, I really don't. I admire so much that you have put yourself to public scrutiny when you don't need to. It's brilliant of you to come and tell us all about it. Thanks very much. Thank
1: you very much.